Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Transform Sales Podcast. Today, I am so delighted to welcome Tommy McNulty. How are you, Tommy? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I am doing fantastic. Let me tell you a bit about Tommy. He is the founder and CEO of Rhythm, a venture-backed SaaS startup using AI to find and monitor areas for profit maximization. Prior to Rhythm, Tommy was the head of B2B at NerdWallet overseeing a team of over 80 people and $70 million in revenue. Tommy joined NerdWallet by the acquisition of Fundera, where he helped grow the company from zero to $50 million in revenue over just five years. He started his career as an SDR and AE at ZocDoc. Wow, you had such a fantastically amazing career. I mean, starting off as an SDR, growing a company to $70 million and now going out on your own. How did you get started and how did you get to where you are today? Yeah, great question. When you say it like that, it feels so short and condensed. And in my mind, I just remember all the, you know, the hard days and the failures that went with it. But yeah, I came out of college and I had started researching just, you know, what jobs I, I might want to get. Like any, any college kid, I had student loans coming and I came across this company, ZocDoc, and they were at the time, one of the only tech startups in New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, not only were they one of the only tech startups, they had raised like a crazy amount of money for the time. Um, you know, they had come off this like $75 million financing round, which today wouldn't really raise any eyebrows, but you know, back in 2010, 2011, that was a really, really big deal. Yeah. So I was like, I have to go work for this company. I don't know what job they could hire me for, but I was able to get in touch with a recruiter and they mentioned that they were building out what was called a business origination team, which what we would know today as an SDR team. So yeah, started there and um, fell in love with kind of the hustle and the grind of doing sales, especially in a startup culture, taking a product to market for the very first time and educating customers. And yeah, that's kind of how it all started. Wow. So you had tenacity, like you were like, this is something cool and I want to get in. How did you go about, and I know the world was very different than it was when you got that job. How did you go about even contacting that recruiter? How did you even find a recruiter to contact? Yeah. So went on LinkedIn, found a a couple folks, saw some recruiters. I sent a bunch of messages out on LinkedIn. I simultaneously applied on the website for a bunch of different job openings. Again, I'm I'm 22 years old at the time. I have no idea what I'm qualified for. (laughs) Um, You know, someone got back to me and that's just kind of how it happened. I you know, a little bit of luck, I'd say. Ah, no, you had early sales <laughs> skills, early sales skills. I tell everyone the best and biggest asset that you can sell is yourself. And even mm-hmm. if you're in between jobs, you know, some of our listeners may be at that point where they're looking for a new position or they're trying to get into a new field or they don't really know what to do. You have to be tenacious. You can't just sit back and apply for a job on a job board and just sit back find some hiring managers, go surround those people on LinkedIn, like do some more stuff. Yeah. And, um, you know, now that I've I've progressed a little bit in my career, I tell this to a lot of people that are younger and just graduating college. And the important thing to remember is you actually don't have any skills. And what you need to prove in an interview process is that you are worth the investment for somebody to give you those skills. And that's really what you have to get across. And you know, I had come from, a, I spent my whole like high school, college years working at a jujitsu school, mm-hmm. which was, it was actually very hard work. Um, you know, it wasn't a traditional white collar internship. It was, you know, getting there to shovel snow if it snowed or fixing pipes and teaching classes and collecting payments. And so I, I had 
I think had some of this, like just kind of get it done mentality in me from a, an early age, which then helped transition into a more, you know, traditional professional job. Mm. And what you said is so true. It College just teaches you how to think. Yes, you know, we pay all this money for these degrees. And you, yes, you should go to college, learn how to think. That's what I say, tell people college teaches you how to do. Because, I mean, I'm a chemist and look what I do now, mm. right? Um, <laughs> college teaches you how to think. And then it's your job to take those skills, the things that you learn, and show the world how it can be applicable to them. Like how you can elevate their company, how you can help um, how they are able to teach you things to make them look better, right? And that's what it's all about. So you yeah. went from being an SDR and you grew this company to tens of millions of dollars. What was your journey up? Yeah, so, you know, at ZocDoc, to be clear, I was an individual contributor there. So I was an SDR, and then I became an account executive. And it was early innings for the company to be doing inside sales. And, and frankly, it was early innings for inside sales and software period, actually. So, you know, this was 2012 at this point, And, you know, there was no outreaches, there was no gongs, there was no yesware. It was, you had Salesforce and you had a phone and <laughs> the rest was on you. And I would spend a lot of time on Yelp, right? Like finding customers to call and researching them. So became an account executive there, uh, became the number one rep in the company. And from there, I, I, I wanted to, you know, I had a little bit of a chip on my shoulder. Uh, I had, you know, grown up here and got become successful and at a pretty young age. I wanted to go and be that first person at another startup, sort of like working side by side with the founding team, which was then when I left ZocDoc and joined Dash, which was a early precursor to mobile payments. Or if you've seen restaurants today, they have a QR code where you might pay your tab via that QR code. We were doing that back in 2012, 2013. Wow. So you have that early adopter tenacious spirit. It's like, what's the newest thing? How can I get in on it? What can I do? Yeah, it's a little bit sadistic where I don't find any joy in going and working on something that's already working. Mm. Um, and, you know, people criticize me for this, especially my family. Um, but I'm just drawn to going towards something that has to be built or has to be fixed. It gives me a sense of joy to see the work that we do be able to become something but that also comes with failure right because mm. you're 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 putting yourself out there quite a bit yeah oh that's good i guess mm. maybe maybe we have some similarities because mm. i i literally i like to tell people i love fixing broken things and that mm -hmm. translates to my personal life which sometimes doesn't always work out and it <laughs> translates to my professional life because when I'm working with organizations, I mean, in what I do as a sales trainer and consultant, it's like I'm coming into this organization that is essentially broken. And then when they're fixed, I'm like, okay, bye. Which is why I wasn't really working very well in sales leadership. Because once the team was fixed, I was like, okay, I'm done. Like, what can mm -hmm. I do next? What can I fix next? Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that it is really important for us to understand where our skill set is. And the things that bring us joy, because if I know that, so in our business, I have to always innovate, I have to always find new things to do so I don't get bored. 100%. And, you know, my last role, you know, it's a VP of sales at Fundera and Fundera was acquired by NerdWallet and NerdWallet is this big, successful public company. And I was there for a little while, but I felt like a little bit like a lost puppy where I was, everything was working so well, the job felt really easy and 
you know, most people would laugh in my face, like, yeah, your job is easy. You're making good money. Like, shut up. Like, just like, don't complain about it. But I felt like I had to jump back into the fire. It's a weird pull. What about the the job? What made you feel uneasy? Like, what were those signs that you knew it was time for a change? You know, I think for me, it became, it was so clear on what I had to do. And if I just did those things every day, I knew the playbook. I knew what the results would be. And it felt to me like I could very easily just hand that to somebody else to do, which is what I did. And I just wasn't waking up with the same inspiration that I was used to. Um, you know, a lot of corporate stuff and you're doing HR meetings and comp meetings. And I was spending an inordinate amount of time making decks for different internal presentations. And I just wanted to get back to, to building and going zero to one again. Yeah, that is one of the key things that many people don't realize that the further you go up the ladder, the less you actually get to touch the customers, touch the actual even individual contributors. Like you do more, there's more bureaucracy, there's more meetings, there's more creating decks. Like that is what you spend your time with. And if you get your joy from meeting with customers or with developing individual contributors, then that may not be for you, right? But if you really want to sit in those meetings and, and be a part of those strategy sessions and rub elbows with the board members and CEOs, then yes, continue to do it. But that is the the challenge that a lot of people have and they don't realize. Yeah. And I think there's a healthy medium. And what I was just finding was I was on Zooms with 15 people and how can we accomplish something on a Zoom with 15 people, right? The only thing you can do with 15 people on a Zoom call is, hey, I'm giving everybody a readout of what happened, right? Yeah. We can't actually have a discussion. We can't solve a problem. And yeah, I just wanted to be in the mix. And I felt like it wasn't in the mix anymore. Um, so like, you know, maybe it'll become a point in time when that's what I want. But right now I, I, um, I want to stay on the field, if you will. So let's jump back a little bit. How did you go from being an AE into getting this VP of sales position? How did that work? Yeah, so I went from ZocDoc to a company called Dash, and for whatever reason, they gave me that title right off the bat. Um, oh. So I was the, but to be clear, I was the VP of sales, but also the first AE. So it wasn't really a VP of sales job. So the first year I was there, I was just doing sales. We had some success. Um, I hired about 15 people across sales and post-sales, and that was like my first foray into sales management. I didn't have another manager. So I had, you know, one manager doing it for the first time, managing 15 people. I'm sure you can imagine how much hell I caused trying to figure uh, out how to do this. But it was a, it was a great opportunity to cut my teeth and kind of understand how to do it, understand how to motivate people, understand things that I could do to make somebody really upset that I shouldn't do, how to think about quantitative measurement and performance management and financial modeling. And when we sold Dash, I was pretty battle tested, right? I had been doing this in a zero to one environment and, you know, I had met the founder of Fundera and, you know, they were having some early success and they wanted to pour more fuel on the fire with sales. And that's kind of how I, I wound up there. And everything that happened at Dash was hard. It was zero to one. It was a new market. Again, this is 2013. Mobile payments and QR codes were not inside of restaurants yet. And when I got to Fundera, you know, they had been well capitalized. It was a, a successful founder who had founded a company already. And when I got there, it kind of felt like I had been punching with weights in my hands. 
Um, mm. And I got to put those weights down and just really start executing. Mm. And that's how it happened. I'd say like, if I were to sum up like how it went, the jump from ZocDoc to Dash was a massive risk. I cut my salary um, by 75%, actually. And again, this is again, another moment where everyone's like, you are effing crazy. Are you stupid? Whoa. You know, um, I remember talking to my grandpa about it. You know, he had immigrated to the United States from Italy and he like cursed me out. He was like, who do you think you are to quit a job that pays you six figures? Like, who do you think you are? And I like, like because like, that was just the mentality of my, like, you know, you, you don't walk away from someone willing to pay you money consistently. But it was that risk that kind of started to set things up because yes, I made less money and it was very painful in the short term. But when I came out of that period of time, I was so far ahead of everybody else of like what I knew and what I understood because I had kind of gone through this pain. And there's just a lesson where you kind of have to, if you have big aspirations, you have to throw yourself into the fire. Like failure is part of the process. And again, I, that's, if I were to think back to like one thing that allowed it to happen, it was the, the risk appetite. When you look back at, you know, you took this huge pay cut, how many years did it take you to exceed what you were making before you left um, ZocDoc? Four. Four. But then in year five, I doubled it. Mm -hmm. and, then it, and, then it uh, and then it stayed doubled. Um, and then more opportunities happened, right? I have equity in companies that are being sold and able to invest in other companies. So it, it starts to kind of compound on itself. And, I, and frankly, I just did the same thing. I, I left NerdWallet, which was a very high paying job and to go to zero, essentially to start my own company. Wow. So it was a risk. And some people may say that doesn't make sense. And as you were going through those first four years, you're probably like, what did I do? Oh my goodness. But then that year five, and that's mm -hmm. what I know happens, right? A lot of times we take risks we do the things that don't seem like they make that much sense. It's like, well, why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? Like, doesn't quite make sense. However, it takes us time. You have to kind of sit in that. And when you sit in it and then you get that real reward, it just accelerates. Very seldom do you take a risk, do something, take a few steps back, have a really low valley, hit a mountain, and then have a, a valley immediately. All the work that mm -hmm. you put in, in that time, it really comes to pay off. Yeah. And, you know, we can call it being right place, right time, but it's really like what happens when skill meets opportunity. Mm. And especially in the first 15 years of your career right, or, or the first one third of your career, I just feel strongly that you should just it, like get the idea of like money and success and showmanship. Like just get that out of your head and just build as much skill as you possibly can, because that skill will meet an opportunity and then you'll just take off. And I think it's hard, like it's not an easy thing to walk away from money and it's not a normal thing to do. But this quote by Bill Gates, someone told it to me early in my career, which is that human beings overestimate what they can do in a short amount of time and they underestimate what they can do in a long amount of time. Mm. And playing the long game, I think is just really important when thinking about your own career. Mm. And no one can ever take the skill away from you. Something can happen and you have any kind of emergency and money's gone, but your skills, those skills live with you forever. And you take those skills and you continue to develop them and build and grow. And the world is your playground. Exactly. It's like a college degree. It can never be taken from you. Never, ever, ever taken from you. So you recently took another risk. So, you know, some people are like, oh yeah, that's what you did in your twenties. You're like, no, 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 I'm still doing these things. 
So yeah. why did you decide to really step out on your own? So I think it's something I always knew I was going to do. You know, I spent eight years reporting to CEOs. So sort of direct to the top, going to the board, being in all of the problems. I had a full head of hair when I started this. And, <laughs> and I felt that I had seen, I'd seen it. I'd been part of it. I'd been through it. And again, chip on my shoulder again. I think I can do it myself. Mm-hmm. And, and I want to do it myself. And it is substantially harder than I thought it was going to be. I thought I knew a lot more than I did, but that's part of the game, right? <laughs> Every time you, you jump in, you, there's new challenges that you, you maybe weren't so aware of, or you had to really experience them for the first time. So I think I am attracted to building, as I mentioned before, I like going zero to one and I felt that I was ready to do it. And that's what happened. And I had an idea that I was passionate about that I wanted to just gonna kind of go all in on. Mm. So literally, again, as we talked about your skill level. So even as you're working at those companies that was building your skills, that was helping your educational acumen, right? Reporting to these CEOs, sitting in these meetings with them, really understanding what investors need, what the board needs to hear, like those things set you up to hit the ground running when you became an entrepreneur. Yeah. Like I would say it was eight years between Dash and Fundera where there was no problem the company had that wasn't my problem. Mm, (laughs) So whether it was growing revenue or finding leads or product or hiring or any of the, you know, COVID, right. And all everything that happened with that. Um, So I felt battle tested. Mm, That's good. No problem. The company had that you did not know about or have to touch (laughs) or fix. That's good. (laughs) That's good. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, when you think about a startup or, you know, in any early stage business, it's Murphy's law, like everything that can go wrong will go wrong. Absolutely. And I think that you have to have that thick skin, you have to have that almost like, kind of arrogant attitude about it, which is like, yeah, it's a problem, we'll fix mm-hmm. it, no one's gonna die, like, we'll get through it. And I think, you know, so many years of going through that with different companies prepped me for, for the role I'm in now. So you said you had this idea. What was this idea for the business that you planted, that you started? Yeah, so I'll tell you a little story on where it came from. So when I was working at Fundera, this was, I think it was roughly like 2018, and we had a board meeting coming up, and we were just surpassed like $15 million in revenue. And I got an email from one of our board members the night before the board meeting, which was directed towards me, like, hey, Tommy why is the SDR team 70% of our customer acquisition cost? What are you doing to drive that down? Oh, I did not know that the SDR team was 70% of the customer acquisition cost. Wow. So I certainly didn't have a plan to drive it down. I was too busy, you know, giving myself a round of applause because the SDR team had set all the meetings that they were supposed to set and they hit their quota. Mm. What I didn't understand was that the financial formula of that team was upside down. Wow. And we were paying too much money, essentially. So I had this epiphany that the role I was now in, right, we were no longer a super startup, we were kind of becoming a more professionalized organization, real revenue, real headcount. Your job as a VP of sales is to get deals done, it's to motivate sales reps, but it's also to be like the master pusher and puller of the financial levers of your team to ensure that when you run your revenue organization and your revenue plays, 
there's a pile of money left over mm. at the end of it. Yeah. And that type of work is actually much closer to accounting than it is to sales. So I was hilariously bad at it, mm. actually, because I, I, I had grown up as an SDR or an AE. So the epiphany that I had was what if we can build a platform that allowed sales leaders to get financially fluent on all of their metrics and financial modeling and headcount planning and all the different things that they have to do as a co-pilot for themselves, right? Where you can like plug in questions, plug in numbers, and you can kind of determine, okay, here's what will happen to the team if we add eight SDRs. Hmm. Here's what will happen to the team if we pay people this amount of money hmm. and have that co-pilot uh, alongside for the ride. That is so cool. I mean, I'm kind of like a numbers nerd. I tell people mm -hmm. in college, I probably would have majored in math, not accounting, but math. Mm -hmm. If I thought there was a path for something, like I was like, what do you do with a math degree? So I decided on chemistry. Mm -hmm. But like those numbers, those metrics, like really taking the wheels off of like true ROI, really understanding if I put this in, what is the output I'm going to get? If I add this, what does that do? Like how much more profitable or how less profitable I'm going to be? Because as you said, a sales leader is really held to the standard of how profitable is this organization? Yes, you can mm -hmm. close $100 million in business, but if it costs us $120 million, you have failed, right? Yeah. Like, and that is the thing. Exactly. And the last 10 years, you've been in an environment where money was readily available to most companies. It was grow, 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 grow. We'll figure out profit and expenses and all of that on the back end. But the world changed quickly uh, and companies are finding religion on how to get profitable and become margin conscious and drive EBITDA. And it's a bit of a different game on the field right now, where it's not just grow headcount. Uh, it's grow headcount, but make sure we are not losing money. <laughs> and it's something I think everybody can do and everybody can learn. It's just, there's a lot to it and there's a lot of ways to think about it. And right now, the only real resource a VP of sales or a CRO has is to have to go and sit down with the CFO and kind of go through everything line item by line item, yeah. which frankly, the problem with that is often after the fact. Yeah. You're often having the conversation about the money you've lost after you've lost the money. Mm. Um, I can tell you that if you have that conversation too many times about the money you've lost after you've <laughs> lost it, you're not going to have your job very long. There um, will be no more conversations. So there will be no more conversations. Um, so I think the expectations will change. VPs of sales will have to become financially fluent. will have to be capable of digging deep into a P&L and making decisions based on that P&L. Yeah, and I think as you well... No, and this is probably why you were able to come up with such a unique solution. This is not something that most VP of sales are ever exposed to. As you said, it's when it's a problem, they're brought into the story. It's like, we are bleeding money. These investors, now it's been four, five, six, ten 10 years. They want to start getting some dividends. What are you doing mm -hmm. to drive that? And they have no idea. And then even if they go stay with the CFO, they don't really understand the terminology. They don't understand what's happening there. Yeah. And it's such a challenge to even be aware yeah. of these metrics or business drivers because you can't just pop into Salesforce and get them. And when I was working at Fundera, it was 2019 and I was looking at the budget and I was looking at some of our, our past numbers and I saw that there was a line item 
which was um, sales contribution margin or, or how many dollars were we returning for every dollar spent on sales. And that number was $3 and 40 cents uh, for every $1 that we spent. So I went to the CFO and I said, what if I can make that $5? Like, what, wait, what would that do for us? And he was like, well, it would be amazing if we could figure that out. And I was like, all right, like, let me get my team together and let, let's like come up with some ideas. And what we wound up doing was we figured out that there were like some processes we can build and there was some headcount that we were able to reallocate from those processes and we could increase productivity per person. And that became like our sole focus for about nine months was just mm. getting that number to $5 for every $1 spent. And then once we got there, then it was a machine because then we could just add people into it. And we knew that every dollar that we put in came five dollars came out. That's and, awesome. And then we were, you know, just super profitable from that point on. Wow. Wow. Mm. That just made me pause because for mm. every one dollar you put in to get five dollars out, I mean, that is every CEO's dream, every sales mm. leader, and especially every CFO's dream, right? Because what that allows you to do is you have reserves at times when, like earlier this year, um, we were in recessionary talks and you had to think about what, what are we cutting? When you have reserves and you already know you have these efficiencies built in, it makes the job of everyone so much easier. Totally. And you de-risk the business mm. so much because, yes, you can screw things up yeah, and you can make mistakes. But your blast radius, like when you're already profitable, is not that high when you make a mistake because you can generally correct yourself mm. versus when you are burning millions of dollars per month yeah. and then you make a big mistake and then you burn more millions, it becomes a deeper and deeper hole to dig out of. Yeah, that's good. You have had a very, very diverse and expansive career. Can you share with us an experience personally or professionally that changed the way that you lead? So when I was young, I told you this before, I worked in a Brazilian jiu-jitsu school and my teacher was, he was one of the very first black belts in America in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And he had been part of the, the culture for a long time. And he was just a pretty remarkable guy and had done so much for the community and you know, ran a really successful business. And he said something to me, I was young, I was like 16 years old, but I just wouldn't forget it, which was that doing good business and doing good are not mutually exclusive, mm. which is basically the undertone of that. And forgive my language, but you can make money and not be an asshole. Mm. Um, like, like, like those things can exist <laughs> in the same plane. And I've always just thought about that, which is as a leader, you have to make decisions. And some of those decisions are difficult decisions. There are layoffs and there are quota increases and there are things that people are not going to like, and you have to have the courage to make them. But you can also be empathetic that like, yeah, I, I understand this is going to be harder, but I have enough literacy in our business that I can talk you through exactly why we have to make these decisions and why it's necessary. And people aren't going to like it, but they're going to trust you, mm. I think. And it's kind of just influenced my way of doing things where I'm, I'm just like the bluntest, most honest person about like, how things go inside of companies or if I have feedback for somebody. And yeah, I'd say that that's something that influenced me and in, in how I think about things. Mm, that's so good. People do think that those things are, are mutually exclusive. Like you can't be profitable. You can't be a strong leader and still be nice or empathetic. But I really think that the empathy is what separates you. It's like you can do whatever you need to do as long as you have empathy. And that empathy comes in. I have empathy to understand 
what you have been through, even if I haven't been through it, I have empathy to understand if I have to lay you off because the financial situation in the company says we have to lay off 10% of our workforce, I understand that this is hard and I'm going to be empathetic towards you. And so that is a really great lesson to have learned at such a young age. Yeah. And again, I just think that we sometimes default to just putting ourselves on one end of the spectrum. Like I have to be a a hard ass or I have to be a softy or whatever you want to call it. And if you ever worked on my team, you know that I, I demand performance. I have very low tolerance for a B player. Mm. Um, but I also know life is long, careers are long, people get better, people change. And when someone's not the right fit for working with me, it doesn't, I don't believe that they're not good. I just believe that they're not the right fit to work with me at this moment in time. Yeah. And you treat them with respect and you treat them with dignity and you know, you hope that they learn from the experience and that maybe you find them again later on in your career. And they're like, well, yeah, like now we can work together. Now I'm ready. Yeah, that's so good. That's so good. And, you know, demanding because you can demand command excellence and still not be like that bulldog or being an extra rollover. It's like be who you are, lead the way that you lead, but realize like these are the people that are working with me. Totally. And, and the longer you live and the longer you're in the professional world, you reflect back on people who were influential to you. And the people that I hated the most because they pushed me the most are the ones that like I love the most now. Mm. Because I, cause I, I reflect back on it and be like, yeah, like you, you got me somewhere else. Mm. Where I, I wouldn't have gotten there on my own because you, you pushed me. Um, yeah. You know, so that's how I think about it. That is awesome. 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 And so Tommy, tell us if we want to, if the audience wants to get in touch with you, learn more about the amazing work that you're doing, what is the one best way? Yeah, just email Tommy at onrhythm.io is, you know, I'm always on email 24-7. So that's, that's the best way to find me. Awesome, awesome. This has been a fantastic, amazing conversation. I really enjoyed learning about your early life all the way to what you're doing now. And, you know, there's lots of similarities there. And when I get bored, I try something new. <laughs> <laughs> that is what I do also. Yeah. So again, Tommy, thank you for your time, your talent, and your expertise today. Yeah, thank you so much. Great chatting. Have a fantastic rest of your day. You too. Thanks. Bye-bye. And that was another episode of the Transform Sales Podcast. Remember, every day and all that you do, try to achieve and get 1% better. Until next time. 